0: Well, it was good to see everybody again, and uh, the board behind me is uh, complete. That is the whole presentation for today. <laughs> Hopefully, it will make a little more sense in just a little while. You would turn with me, uh, please, to Luke chapter 11. We're going to begin on uh, verse 14 today. While you're Turning there. Let me just. uh... Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity and thank you so much for the prayers Dennis lifted up. And uh, I know that as Dennis was praying, each of us uh, had in our minds uh, people, uh, others that we're uh, lifting up as well. And we do that now, Father. And we do pray. Uh, I pray especially, Father, that this passage. will become crystal clear to us, uh, and it will be very meaningful uh, to each one of us uh, going forward. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 11, we've been in this particular aspect of this uh, wonderful gospel for a number of weeks, even though they were divided between May and and now, but uh, nonetheless... (laughs) Uh, We're in this this part of Luke that is very unique uh, to the four Gospels in that it is a a very long section of this Gospel. Uh, We've referred to it as the Journey to Jerusalem. That's its most common name in in, uh, commentaries and so forth. Some people call it the travel narrative. Uh, Others have other names for it, but it runs all the way from the ninth chapter of Luke, verse 51 through the 19th chapter, Verse 44. So it's uh, uh, that's why it's the longest section in this gospel. And most of what is in this uh, 10 or 11 chapter section is unique to Luke. Uh, There are at least 17 parables. Some people call different things parables, so there's always a little controversy there. But there are at least 17 parables that we're going to encounter. Uh, in these chapters, we've already seen some of them, uh, but what is what is going on here, and the reason that uh, that I keep harping on it is because uh, this is this segment this this eleven chapter segment is Luke preparing his disciples and you and me for a very, very decisive moment in human history we have we are so familiar with the gospel hopefully that that it does not have the the uh, gravitas that it should but what he is preparing his disciples for what Jesus is speaking to these men about is his entry into Jerusalem and journey to the cross everything is headed to the cross and that is going to be an event that um, regardless of how much Jesus has been with these men as we know and very understandably, is going to be disillusioning to some of them. They're going to wonder, well, how could this happen? Uh, And for three days, they're going to to be uh, in a bit of of shock. Uh, But the empty tomb, of course, is is what claims the victory. But um, throughout this section, therefore, because Jesus is, is getting these men and getting the people who are following him many Israelites following him around. Uh, he's getting all of them ready to handle this. This is, this is going to be something that he knows is going to be revelatory. It indeed is so revelatory that all of human history is divided by it uh, between the B.C.s and the A.D.s and all of those kinds of things. Uh, but uh, this is going to be shocking because he's going to have to turn every heart and soul upside down, including our own. Uh, he 's therefore going to be full of tension in this section. These eleven chapters have many places of tension, uh, and that is going to again bring us to the cross. Another thing that is unique about this large segment out of the middle of Luke is that it has virtually no chronological notations, virtually no topographical locations uh, this is this uh, this this man, Luke in the power of the Holy Spirit, putting a lot of of, um, events in the life of Jesus, and he is not concerned about when they happen or where they happen. Jesus is moving from the north in Galilee down uh, toward Judea, toward Jerusalem, and it's irrelevant, frankly, uh, where these things are happening. If you recall earlier in Luke, there was a lot we had to say about, we even drew a, a map or two Uh, about where all of these things were occurring, they had significance. They no longer have that significance. It's all in the words of Jesus, and therefore the the sayings and the parables. Uh, So he's teaching a new way to follow God, which is, again, as revelatory a statement as anyone ever encounters and it's not the way that the Jewish religious teachers and leaders have been telling these, these, uh, their people, the, the Jews, uh, for hundreds of years. Jesus is here alone reversing everything these people have been told. And he's asking them to respond. He is indeed demanding that they respond in a new way. He demands the same of every single heart and soul in this room today. We too are confronted uh, with the tensions in this life, and the issues that come every now and then. We we recognize them when we when we encounter them that are so uh, significant, so revelatory, so uh, of such uh, import that that we know something is happening here, and that is an understatement for where we are now in Luke eleven. Uh, I'll give you throughout history. This passage has. Uh, has played a part in people's hearts when they have encountered these kinds of things. And I want to read you an example of that. Um, (coughs) The date is June 16, 1858. Uh, This country is um, about two years ahead of its most cataclysmic event, which we know of as the Civil War. Uh, An event that would kill 600,000 people and permanently maim, injure, uh, destroy the lives of millions more. June 16, 1858, a man named Abraham Lincoln has uh, just been in the Republican convention in the town of Springfield, Illinois. He's just been awarded with the uh, go-ahead to run for the Senate, the United States Senate, from Illinois, and his acceptance speech, uh, which it really wasn't, but that's what it's generally noted for, is called the House Divided Speech. Very few words, but as Lincoln was prone to do, very significant words. Here are some of the words he said that resonate and are taken from the passage we're about to examine. He says, we are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That comes from the passage we're about to study. I believe this government cannot endure permanently, half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing, or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in course of ultimate extinction or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Uh, Those words, remain uh, as they should <clears throat> famous in the history of this of this country and what lincoln is saying there is you cannot be divided on a very very significant issue of any kind one or the other is going to win out you can't survive with a foot in and a foot out of the door he was correct uh, jesus is going to say the same thing in the Uh, passage we're about to read Uh, let me it's clearer actually in uh, the book of Matthew chapter 12 Matthew 12 uh, verse 25 says it this way knowing their thoughts he Jesus said to them every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand Also in the gospel of Mark, Mark 3, chapter 25, 325 says, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And remember what uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples, what he's teaching the Israelites, what he teaches you and me today is that when ultimate issues are at stake, you cannot be divided on them. But Jesus is speaking about something far, far worse than the dissolution of a country, than the breaking up of of a country so that it would not be a nation. Uh, Jesus is speaking, in fact, about some scenario uh, that is eternal destruction past the things of this world. Therefore, we see, again, in all of this section in Luke, and especially in this passage we're going to look at, Severe opposition. Why? Why would people be opposing Jesus in this, uh, in this kind of a, a statement? Well, it's because the words of Jesus threaten our autonomous self-centeredness. Let me say that again. The words of Jesus, not just here, anything and everything Jesus spoke is a threat to autonomous self centeredness. That is the condition that we are all born in. We are sinners. What sinners do is they are autonomously self centered. I want what I want and I will get it uh, to a greater or lesser degree in whatever way it takes me to get it. And I am that way until the Holy Spirit enters my heart and changes me and even when that happens, I continue to fight and struggle over this desire to be autonomous, to be my own God and utterly for my own sake and benefit. That is a struggle that every person has from birth to death. Uh, it's It's an incredible story. Let's read, we begin with just verses 14, 15 and 16 here of Luke chapter 11. He says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. i want to stop right there. Just that first, that first verse there. We've seen Jesus already in this gospel doing much more dramatic things than this. He's cast out demons before, more demons than just apparently this one that this individual had. Uh, the fact that the man couldn't speak and once uh, his, um, his demon was cast out, he began to speak made the people marvel. But the people aren't marveling for the right reasons. Uh, in fact, that word marvel is an interesting sort of tangential word. It, it's not saying that the people are sitting there and thinking, wow, what a great person Jesus is. We better listen to everything. Some of them perhaps were thinking that. But the fact that they're marveling uh, is It's sort of, uh, you get the sense that, that they're thinking, well, this is unusual. We need to know more about this. But in point of fact, there's something very, very significant going on here because what has happened with this demon-possessed man who was made mute is that Satan took his voice away and our voices are meant to bring praise and glory and prayer to God. That is a function that we all have a mandate, if you will. And the fact that Jesus not only cast the demon out, but when the demon goes, the man can now speak again. That is extremely significant. Seems a bit pedestrian, but it's not. Uh, Because what is man created for? He's created to speak and sing God's praises. He's created to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. He is created to shout Its power, and what does Satan want to do? He wants to silence every believer. Whenever we are silenced, maybe it's, um, in this case, it was a physical issue uh, brought on by a demon in this man, but we can be silenced by doubt. Uh, We can be silenced by suffering. We can be silenced by any number of things, insecurity. you know I, I, who am I to stand up and tell tell this this person all of these kinds of things i re, i remember i won't tell, tell you the occasion it was it was auspicious uh, and i was uh compelled to uh, to deliver a sermon the morning after a very traumatic event had occurred and I didn't know what to do i i this was this was beyond anything I'd ever experienced the night before, and I thought, oh my goodness, what in the world am I going to do? So what I wound up doing was simply preaching Jesus. I didn't know how to address the traumas. I didn't know how to address the issues that had been declared the night before. So I just preached Jesus. Every Christian can do that. You don't have to be a seminary graduate. You don't have to have, be some sort of uh, high IQ individual. Every Christian knows Jesus, and that is the core of the gospel. That's why the apostle Paul, arguably one of the most intelligent human beings written about in scripture and who wrote scripture, says, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. That's it. That's all I need to do. That's all I am compelled to do. The Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. But I am called to speak uh, lovingly, wisely. I don't need to, to go... Uh, Uh, ill-advisedly and and, uh, run my mouth when it's it's not appropriate to do so. But ultimately, my job, if I'm a believer, is to speak. And Jesus has just encountered this man and gotten him on the right path. Uh, If you think about the Garden of Eden, that's exactly what was going on in the Garden of Eden. God comes in and he has Adam and Eve, and they're speaking. They're conversing one-on-one. We don't know what that must have been like. Uh, I assume it was Jesus himself, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, God, the father is a spirit, but uh, nonetheless, Adam and Eve are conversing with with the triune God in the garden until Satan comes in and says, wait a minute. Let me tell you another alternative story here. And he gives them this, it leads them down this, this wrong pathway. What in effect Satan was doing was putting duct tape over their mouths. He was stopping them. He was creating so much doubt and indeed uh, leading them away from everything God had said. He, he tells them, Satan tells them, come on, he didn't mean any of that. You don't think he really meant any of that, do you? Let me show you a better way. You want that fruit over there. That fruit de- is, deli- is more delicious than you even think it is. Go have it because I know you are uh, you want to be autonomous. You want to be free from God. You want to be self-centered. You're Everything about you is looking at that fruit. Go enjoy it. And that's, nothing of that has changed. And all of that, all of that sin, all of that, uh, all of that uh, trauma is, is, uh, are ways in which Satan is still at work today trying to silence the people of God. And we must not allow this to happen. So Satan comes in and uh, when we fail to speak, some of the people, it says, marveled. However, verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So the folks, uh, some folks marveled, uh, others came in and said, wait a minute, this, this, uh, this thing Jesus just did, uh, the power he got came from Beelzebul, the prince of demons, which is an absurd thought to begin with, but uh, not to these people. They accused Jesus, in other words, because they're saying that his power to cast out demons came from demons, indeed the chief of the demon, which again, makes no sense whatsoever. Now, you'll read pages trying to figure out who this Beelzebul is, you don't need to worry about it. Uh, Belzebub is is this uh, person they are identifying is Satan. It goes right back to Satan, whether or not you want to uh, to parse it any other way, and it's easy to parse it other way. Second Kings chapter one verse two, Ahaziah, the king of Israel, uh, appeals to Baal Zebub. Uh, Some people say that Baal-zebub is what has has been morphed hundreds of years later into uh, Beelzebul. Uh, In point of fact, Beelzebul, the English version of this word, actually comes from the Latin, uh, a Latin origin that means Lord of the Flies, interestingly enough. If you've read that book, uh, it's not scintillating Um, read but the bottom line is what these people are saying is is jesus is able to do that because he's got a demon he's got the king of the he's got satan himself doing all this and of course this kind of of accusation uh, is is hatred of jesus hatred of god As we've come to this point in chapter 11, we have seen Jesus over and over and over again, not only healing people, not only raising people from the dead, giving mothers back their sons, and on and on, casting out demons, but in total sincerity, these people are responding with hypocrisy. As Jesus shows his sympathy for them, they're responding in cruelty. As Jesus humbles himself before them, they're becoming pompous. And as Jesus gives them the truth, they're responding in lies. And again, this happens every single day today. And it's always a temptation, even though we would say, well, I would never say something like that. Anytime a person slanders the church of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, the word of of God, any of those things, it is equivalent to hatred of God Himself. Why? Because a house divided cannot stand. It's either going to go all one way or it's going to go all the other way. Boy, this big rabbit just ran across the back of the room. Y'all didn't see it, but I'm uh, desirous of chasing it. I'm going to chase it just for a, for a few minutes. <coughs> Just for a few minutes, uh, false teaching. Some people don't like churches that that uh, exercise church discipline because they say, "Well, oh, you me, you're you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. You have no right to tell me what to do." Uh, the Church of of God has every right, indeed, mandate to practice church discipline because the, the threat of Satan coming in the side door with false teaching is a a mandate of every church to, to guard itself against this. Had an opportunity uh, recently to, to look at uh, some of the letters in the book of, of Revelation. I'm not going to go there yet. I'm going to go uh, to back to Luke chapter 6 and just uh, read one verse. Luke chapter 6, verse 26 says, Woe to you! When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. See what Jesus is saying there? Uh, There are false prophets. When they are false, do not speak well of them. Call it what it is and get them either to repent of their sin and correct what they speak or do not allow them to speak because all such speech is God hatred. Uh, Here's here's, uh, even more to the point. The same man, Luke, uh, records in Acts chapter 20. uh, You remember this wonderful, wonderful episode in in, uh, Acts chapter 20 where the Apostle Paul, who has been leading this church and the elders of this church in Ephesus, when he's leaving them, he gives them some advice. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 29, 30 and 31 say this. Paul says, I know, he's got this, this group of elders gathered together, and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears." Uh, To be a Christian is a serious, serious matter. To be a gathering of Christians in an organized church is a serious, serious matter. And the the, prevention of false teaching of things that uh, ultimately, again, are simply hatred of God uh, is a very important function of every believer. Uh, today what, is the, what do you see when you look around at the church in the United States of America you see accommodation uh, let's look like the culture maybe if we look like the culture we'll be able to appeal and draw more to them uh, there is not one day in the, in the narrative about Jesus in any of the four gospels in which Jesus was not considered a controversialist John Stott even wrote a book uh, I think he, he entitled it, Christ the Controversialist, if I remember correctly. Uh, you, we should expect that. We are self-centered people. God is calling us to an, an entirely different belief system and structure in him and the power of the Holy Spirit. So be don't be surprised by it. Expect it. And analyze your own heart, your own mind to see uh, if we are each growing in knowledge of Scripture as we should be, uh, verse sixteen. And So we've seen some who were who were marveling. We've seen some who said, "Well, okay, yeah, he did that because uh, he's got the power of Satan in it." Verse sixteen says, "While others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Show us a sign." That's that's uh, that's been a commonplace throughout Scripture. Again, I'll, I'll allude to just a couple of passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians, the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. When you go out into any community, uh, your best friends, your family, your um, family, certainly, any wider communities understand that when you preach Christ and Christ crucified, it will be seen as foolishness to some, and others will say, "Oh yeah, well, if that's true, then then show me a sign and prove it. Give me something more concrete than that." So these people come and uh, they want to uh, to see more out of Jesus they say well maybe we'll we'll believe that show us something else he's just thrown a demon out of a man but they still want something else. And you know, many of the other passages we could allude to. Now, verses 17, 18, and 19. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. That's Luke's version of the, of the, uh, of the Lincoln description. Verse 18. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. So Jesus is saying that's completely ridiculous. It's contradictory on the surface of it. Why would Satan cast out Satan from anybody is what Jesus is saying. So, so this uh, sort of uh, argument is, is pretty foolish. It's illogical, uh, contradictory. Every attack upon God uh, in, in point of fact is completely self-refuting. If I want to be a skeptic, I still have to have a base foundation of truth, and that base foundation of truth is only described in scripture. If I want to believe in evolution, I've still got to figure out how in the world did all this stuff get here, so that some fish could flap up on the beach and start barking like a dog over millions of years. I don't know what. I, I, it, it is stunning to me that, that so-called scientists could fall for the theory of evolution. It is, it is self-contradictory from beginning to end, yet if you are a godless individual, it, uh, you, you're going to push those kinds of narratives. But every one of the narratives, if I'm a rationalist, uh, if I'm a person who needs science, I need proof, show me proof, uh, all of those things assume that there is a truth that it can compare to, and that truth comes only from one source, and that's the Word of God. So, all, all attacks that we've just read in, in these verses are uh, they presume the authority that that is not there. The only authority that's there is in is in Jesus Himself and God. Verse twenty. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth here. I'll tell you how I cast the demon out. I cast the demon out by the finger of God. And therefore, this is illustrative of the fact that with me on this earth, the kingdom of God has now come before you. Now, there's a... Oh goodness! There are hours and hours of discussion about uh, this, the coming of the kingdom. What Jesus is not saying here is that the kingdom is fully come. The kingdom is not going to fully come until the second coming uh, there are There are advances in the coming of the kingdom, but Jesus is coming to this earth, the incarnation the reason that that changes from Old Testament to New Testament is that the kingdom has come when jesus comes it 's coming and it will continue to come. When he goes to the cross, it comes in a greater degree. When the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost, it comes at a greater degree. But here Jesus is saying, you're sitting here looking at the coming of the kingdom of God, and I've just proved it to you by casting out uh, this demon, the finger of God. This, that expression, as you might imagine, uh, if you go back all the way to the book of Exodus, Exodus um, chapter 8, Verse 19, you will read uh, a very interesting statement. Exodus 8:19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. That's talking about the third of the plagues, plague of gnats in that particular instance. Uh, Pharaoh's own henchman came to him and said that only the finger of God could have done this. And Pharaoh said, ah, not, not listening to that. Uh, probably a better passage to look in the New Testament, book of Matthew chapter 12. The same passage, by the way, that we have seen this house divided verse, uh, but this time Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So this event in the life of Jesus is described by Matthew by saying Jesus did this by the Holy Spirit, which of course uh, Luke does not deny when he says the finger of God. They just express it differently. So the kingdom has come upon you. Then he illustrates it with a little two-verse parable, verses 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Uh, Pretty uh, small and and, uh, easily understood, I think, uh, parable. But what Jesus is talking about here, the strong man he's relating is Satan. That is the strong man in the parable. The good's. Uh, When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. What goods does Satan have? The people that Satan has duped and has controlled to prevent them from becoming Christian. Now, of course, Satan cannot do that. Ultimately, God's purpose will come through. But he can certainly cloud the issue and make it more difficult. And even when we have become believers, he will continue his assaults. But what Jesus says is, when those those goods are safe, they're under Satan. But when one stronger comes, that's Jesus, then he will divide the spoil. In other words, Jesus is going to overcome because Jesus is stronger than Satan. Satan, remember, is is an angel. Powerful, yes. Uh, To be reckoned with, yes. Uh, But... Equal to Jesus? No. I I see far too many Christians who who seem more concerned about where Satan is than they do where Jesus is. If I've got Jesus, I live with Jesus. I stay with Jesus. I don't have to worry about where Satan is. Will he come after me? Probably. Uh, He may even be successful from time to time. But at the end of the day, I fall back on Jesus, the stronger of the two, the infinitely stronger of the two. Uh, let me read you a couple of passages that are are noteworthy in this regard as well. Uh, First from the book of of, uh, Colossians, chapter two, verses 13, 14, and 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him that is Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, aka the demons and Satan, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you can't can't get much better than that, but I'll read you another one from the second chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, talking about Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus gives them a very crystal clear passage. He said, look, it's ridiculous that you would think Satan would throw himself out of this man where I just uh, threw the demon from. That's self-contradictory. What you should see instead is that I, Jesus, am God in the flesh, and I have now come. Therefore, the kingdom has come. Therefore, ultimate strength has come, a strength capable of throwing everything out of Satan's house and redeeming those that are his. Verse 23, this is where it all comes home. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now you see the board behind me. There's a line in the sand. Uh, in, In discussing Christianity, there's no Switzerland here. There's no Switzerland in this battle. There's no neutral site now, there's no middle ground. There, there's no wait and see. There's no partial Jesus. There's no works righteousness. There's no lukewarmness. Revelation 3, there's one of those churches. Jesus comes in and says, I'd rather you be either cold or hot. Just don't hang around. Just don't hang around and dabble with me. I don't want you dabbling with me. Either, either, you're either all in or you're all out. Uh there's there's uh Frank. I'm not going to get into that now. <laughs> but I will again point to this. This is, this is when, you, when Jesus comes, when somebody presents the gospel, it's all or nothing. I run into so many people who, who will say, okay, I, I sort of understand. It even makes a little bit of sense, but I've got, they, they would never tell me this, but they, what they're saying without saying it. I've got some more sins I want uh, to, to dabble. Uh, immerse myself with. I've got time. I'm a young person, perhaps, or or I think I'm healthy. I'm all right. Uh, and you know, through all the Gospels, Jesus comes to people like that and said, what you don't know is tonight I'm going to demand your soul of you. And there is no more time. None of us know how much time there is. There is one response and one response only that scripture calls forth, and that is come to Jesus and come fully and come completely and never, ever change any of that Uh, nothing is going to stand with one foot in each camp it's either going to go all this way or it's going to go all that way if you're dabbling with satan you're going to go all that way you've got to come to jesus and come to him fully with all of your heart will you continue to sin yes you will as i do Uh, and that's repentance is what's going to come out of out of these passages Uh, God is is so, so gracious. Romans chapter seven, when Paul himself says, I can't believe the things I want to do are not the things I do, the things I would never want to do. I find it. Who can save me from? And then he, he puts the clincher in the end. Jesus can. Jesus did. Jesus does. And Jesus forever will. All in for Jesus. A line in the sand. Go one side of it and go to heaven and all of the blessings that come from being a Christian. It's a wonderful, incredibly wonderful and undeserved. One of the earlier passages we read, uh, also Ephesians chapter two, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our sins don't just make us gimpy. They have killed us. We cannot come to God until his Holy Spirit opens our hearts. But when he does, we come to Jesus, embrace him, and don't ever, ever turn away or look back. Let's pray. Father, this, uh, these few words seem so simple, and indeed they are simple. It, it, is a, it is a clear, simple message that Jesus brings to these Jews in Jerusalem or, or north of Jerusalem, somewhere, That same message he brings to Greenville, South Carolina today and to every country on the face of this planet today. Here I am, believe in me and be saved. All else is destruction. Father, give us your Holy Spirit in in larger and larger measure. May your Holy Spirit uh, talk with us, deal with us, help us not to quench that spirit. Help us not to grieve that spirit through our sin. Help us to understand when we sin, we don't need to doubt. We just need to repent of our sin and come back. Father, lead us with your spirit. Uh, Help us to never, ever stop talking, stop loving others who have not perhaps had the privilege we've had just yet. But we don't know who those others are. So we take the gospel and we take it to every single human being on this planet. And we never, ever stop speaking the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, make us stronger in our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.